This week on Cold Steel. You know, setting the tone of the room and establishing that level of communication is really important. So I have had also instances where I have had a surgeon come and do a 10-hour day and not look me in the eye or acknowledge me directly in any way. Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. There are so many jokes about the relationship between surgeons and anesthetists, often about how dysfunctional that relationship can be. But in this episode with Dr. Melinda Davis, neuroanesthetist and current program director of the Calgary Anesthesia Program, we put that relationship on the table, dissect it out, and try to think about ways that we can make that relationship better. We also talk about career counseling for medical students and Dr. Davis's role as the new program director for the Calgary Anesthesia Program. Dr. Davis, thank you so much for agreeing to come on Cold Steel. We really appreciate it uh, and you taking out time from your busy schedule. Uh, For those of us who don't know you as well, can you tell us a bit about where you grew up and where you did your training and particularly how you made it from all the way down under into this uh, frigid uh, town called Calgary? Sure. Well, firstly, thank you for thinking of me for this. Um, I did indeed not grow up in Canada. Um, So I grew up in Sydney, Australia. Um, And I did all of my medical school training there and all of my anesthesiology training there. Um, And interestingly, I went straight into medical school from high school. So I was 17 in my first year of medicine for the for the most of that first year actually which was really interesting because it was a very clinically um kind of oriented into clinically integrated medical school so there I was kind of not old enough to vote or to drink and there I was kind of on the wards trying to come to grips with all of the psychosocial aspects of these patients admissions Um, And honestly, I I would not recommend this. I think it's really great that people have some life experience under their belt before they enter medical school. Uh, So I did a five-year medical degree uh, in Newcastle, Australia. And after that, I went into a two-year rotating internship. And to my mind, that is one of the great strengths of medical education in Australia, actually. And I'm happy to kind of chat more about that if if you'd like later on. But, But it really gave us an opportunity to um, you know, hone our skills as generalist physicians. So by the time we chose our disciplines to specialize in, we kind of had seen a lot of different stuff at that point. Um, and my move into Australia, actually, into uh, anesthesia, sorry, was quite accidental in that I was in my second year of this rotating internship and they needed someone to come and 
join the anaesthesia on call roster because unfortunately one of the anaesthesia registrars which is what we call um, residents had had a suicide attempt and you know it was a sign of the times in that we never really discussed what a horrific thing that was but it was more like well now we need to put someone else on the schedule and so I was pulled out at that point uh, and trained up pretty quickly and wound up uh, taking call as an anaesthesia registrar um, and as it turns out, that was the right career choice for me. But um, certainly that I think has formed some of the interest that I have in career selection in medical students. So following my um, anesthesia training there, I actually came to Calgary to do a neuroanesthesia fellowship. And that's then I, then I stayed. So I came for a year and I'm here 17 years later. Um, yep. So that's my story from down under to the uh the northern hemisphere here there's so much to unpack in that little bit that little snippet of your life i mean from from the fact that uh something so horrific happened and, and we never really talk about these things um at all Absolutely. And, uh, you know that there's there's a lot to think about there i'm curious a little bit about how you think about the differences between what you went through in australia in terms of medical training versus uh, sort of your impression of the system here. Um, you know, I have lots of Australian friends and, and we talk a lot about the differences in training. Um, you know, it's kind of unique in North America where people typically do some kind of undergraduate degree, often will do a graduate degree and then enter medical school versus in, I'd venture to say most of the world, people kind of come directly out of, out of high school or A levels and, uh, and start medicine. How do you think that changes the way people uh, interpret or, or practice as physicians um, and then and then maybe talk a little bit about sort of the flip side of that where people have to do a bit more uh, years as a general uh, physician before they subspecialize. Um, you know there's good and bad. As I was saying earlier I, I really think that people need a little bit of extra life experience in order to to train in medicine and it's interesting as I get older too like I'm much more able to appreciate all of the facets of patient-centered care because of all of the things that have happened to me in my life and honestly as a 17 year old I just had no idea when I think back at that I I cringe um for sure, my ability to uh, learn new information was probably better than, than it is now. And so I think I could kind of cram all that stuff in and I had fewer um, competing things going on in my life so I could focus on, on getting my medical degree. But I think on balance, I, I think it's awesome that people here come from all sorts of different other backgrounds to do their degrees. And of course, yeah, the, the flip side is that uh, it takes longer here and I certainly got through my degree pretty quickly in that I finished medical school at 22 um, and then I was all done all of my training by 30 so that was helpful um, but it's a trade-off for sure. I think one of the benefits um, of the Australian system is this idea that you go off and you do this internship and there's no match. And to be fair, it was a long time ago that I went through this process, that I finished medical school, that I did my intern year, et cetera. Um, 
And so I, I feel like I'm poorly qualified to, to comment on what it's like today. But I think the absence of a match is crucial for developing well-rounded physicians. And this is something that, you know, is a research interest of mine because I think the match, while on one hand is good in that it is a good way to manage um, human resources across the country, it's a good way to, I guess, make things as fair as possible in terms of access to postgraduate training. Uh, on the other hand, it is so incredibly competitive and it drives this very early differentiation. Like students really feel like they need to make a commitment to a career choice very, very early. And, and that's some of the data that I've been collecting in my research. And interestingly, I was just looking at, at some of the results from this year's class. So about 30% of students that come into medical school have already committed to a career choice. And I put to you that at that point, you really don't understand truly the pros and cons of any career in medicine, unless you've had a chance to really be very deliberate about your exploration. So I think the match here does a disservice to our students and our, and our healthcare system in a way, because I think the risk is the unintended consequence that we are not producing well-rounded physicians. And that's not true of every student. Like clearly there are students who are going to be excellent in all domains but the risk is that if you put blinkers on and aim for one particular specialty career you're going to not adequately I think learn about all of the other parts of medicine that you may well come up against in your life as that physician so there are pros and cons of both systems and I've been really lucky to be able to experience both of them in various different capacities. I mean, such an um, important point that you're raising, you know, it's particularly we see it exacerbated in Calgary because our medical students um, only had three years to do medical school. And right. it's the same thing in McMaster. So that that issue is heightened in terms of having to make a very quick decision without even having rotated through medical school often through various rotations and, and still having to make a decision quite uh, early on. I mean, do yeah. you think that is a disadvantage for those medical students? And, and how do you see um, the role of the undergraduate medical education um, committee and, and program directors um, in, in terms of giving people a wide um, sort of taste of specialties, particularly specialties like anesthesia that, that don't mm -hmm. really have a big footprint in the undergraduate medical education curriculum? Yeah, yeah, this is a, a real consideration. And it's not just true of the, the three-year schools. The four-year schools have got the same issues because they're needing to choose their electives for their final year, you know, relatively early because of the time lag or the, the um, latency between booking and, and doing. Um, but, yeah, you're right. Like the three-year students really, and this is the craziest thing, need to have a bit of an idea about what it is that they want to do for their career pretty much by the end of first year because when they come back from summer for what what the summer that they do get um they really need to start thinking about the order of their clerkship rotations so that that process can start to take place and so they need to kind of know maybe not with any certainty about what they want to do but they probably need to have a bit of an idea about what they don't want to do so that they can order their clerkship rotations so that those rotations occur after the comes cut off um so 
And interestingly, though, the match rate in Calgary, by and large, is in keeping with the rest of the country. Um, and that's true of McMaster as well. So something is working for those three-year schools. This um, is the reason, though, that we've developed the career exploration program uh, at the University of Calgary. And so the idea there is to make this process really deliberate and to bring it way, way forward in the process, in, in the program, so that I've already spoken to them once in lecture form to kind of give them an idea of how this is going to look. But our first-year students in the fall of first year, so three or four months in, have a um, individual career coach and they're starting to have conversations with them about what their interests are, what their values are, what they kind of picture that for their future professional lives and how they can go about investigating various different options for them. Because you're right, if they wait to see you know, to be passively exposed to these different careers in medicine, they simply will not be exposed to them in the time that they have in order to make the decision. So it needs to be a very deliberate process and we have recognised that and we hope to put things in place to help them with that, including sort of facilitated shadowing and connecting them with preceptors where they can ask some of the really important questions about you know, career choice, which includes questions along the lines of what's the worst part of this job? And can I live with it kind of stuff? Unfortunately, COVID has put a little bit of a um, wrench in the system with our uh, plans for shadowing this year, but we'll see how that unfolds. Melinda, I'm just curious, how many programs across the country have sort of an early exposure tract or, or pathway like that? Is that unique to Calgary or is that typical in 2020? Uh, I think it is unique. I think all schools wow. have some form of career counselling and most of them have some you know access to to these resources but as far as I know we're the only program that has made a very deliberate attempt to make mm -hmm. this early and to make it conscious that one of the things that we've discovered in collecting data is that there are some biases around career choice and students come into medical school in some instances with this preconceived notion of what a family physician looks like and does and what a surgeon does. And, and sometimes they're wrong. And sometimes it's based on stereotype. Sometimes it's based on work experience that wasn't entirely kind of complete or, um, you know, a mentor for their or, or a graduate degree supervisor who worked in that field where you've got mm -hmm. like part of the information but mm -hmm. not all of it. And so we have felt that this program is really important to try and push up against some of those stereotypes and biases and just make sure that people really know what it is that they're signing up for when they decide upon a career in surgery, for example. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me li listening to you talk about this so eloquently because you, you sort of described my personal experience to the T. You know, I did. A, I grew up in Edmonton. I did an undergrad degree there. I went and did grad school at UBC and decided really late, like, almost at the end of my graduate degree, I'm going to do medicine. And I had a, um, a sports medicine physician that was on my master's uh, um, thesis group. Right. So, you know, my exactly that, my exposure was, was sort of like, well, I come from this varsity sporting background. I like sports. This guy's great. I'm clearly going to do sports medicine. And I remember hitting medical school and saying, well, I should just be sure that, that that's the case. And I, I went to University of Toronto for medical school. 
And in the first half a day, I realized there was no way I was going to do that for a whole host of different reasons that you can probably guess knowing me. But so I thought, well, the, the next natural progression of that must be orthopedic surgery. So then I went and looked at orthopedic surgeons and hung out with them, you know, on weekends for about three or four weeks. And I was like, oh, oh, no, this, I don't like this either. Yeah. And I, I really did spend two full years every weekend I could, and at least one weeknight, and I emerged to family medicine, to obstetrics, everything walking around. And I just sort of assumed at that time, I remember thinking that everyone else must be doing the same. But mm. you're exactly right. Nobody was. No, and it I'm... seemed, maybe because I, because I was older and because it was a late choice for me as a career path, maybe it, my view of it was different. But, you know, I think the program you're describing is, is so important. Well, what you did there was really interesting. Like you made an investment, like you decided to actually do this in a really deliberate way. And it that's hard. And it's hard to push up against something that you may have had, you may have believed, like you had a belief that sports medicine was the way to go for you. And it's way easier to just kind of go with that and then seek confirmation that you've made the right choice. And so I wonder if some of the shadowing that we see is really just an exercise in confirmation bias. Uh, so one of the things, yeah, like it, it, we're all prone to these sort of decision-making errors, if you like. Um, and sure, if if doing that really truly does confirm that you've made the, the right choice, then that's awesome. But it's really important to listen to that niggly feeling as well and to ask yourself, like, can, is this sustainable? Like, can I really see myself doing this for 30 years like what is the worst part of this job and how does that jive with an honest appraisal of myself and I, yes. know, I feel like this is stuff we haven't really explored yes it's so true right we we don't talk about it we're not exposed to it in general and I, I i remember just sort of thinking after the third or fourth patient in this sports medicine clinic like these guys are all princesses. There, there's absolutely no, no no way I can do this for the rest of my life. And I, I had absolutely no idea. Like, it was remarkable how sort yeah. of ignorant and silly I was. Well, you know, good for you for kind of going through that process. And clearly, you've made the right choice now. <laughs> absolutely. Well, one, one kind of really, I think, crucial and interesting part of this whole conversation about career choices is that it seems like there's been a bit of a crisis, at least, um, you know, in the news and in social media about medical students not matching at all uh, in Canada. Right. You know, like uh, the last couple of years, we've seen sort of record numbers of medical students go unmatched. I think uh, not last year, but the year before, it was something like the entire, like an entire medical school class, something like 200 medical students or so That's never right. matched at all. Um, and, and to me, you know, like you could sort of say, well, many of these people probably chose, or some of these people at least chose high risk or highly competitive specialties. Um, and, and there was always going to be a chance that they might go unmatched, but 200 seems like a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, when you consider that there were many positions across Canada for residency that were unfilled, uh, particularly in family medicine. How do you make sense of that, and how does that change the way that we counsel medical students when when they're thinking about their career choices? Oh yeah, it's such a good question. Uh, you know the the reasons behind that match rate really would be the subject of an entire PhD thesis, um, and it's incredibly complex. 
But certainly it's fair to say that over the last decade, the number of applicants to seats has gone down. No, other way around. There are fewer seats per applicant um, available. And that is particularly true, as you say, in some of the more competitive disciplines. So there is um, a PhD student who may have finished actually in Toronto who is doing a combined PhD MD degree um, who has looked at this and published some really interesting data on that. And what he found is that the um, CALMS disciplines, R1 entry disciplines, fall roughly into three different clusters, cluster A, B, and C. And cluster A, uh, in that cluster, there are more positions than there are applicants. Uh, and the risk of going unmatched in those disciplines, and I'm talking about things like internal medicine, family medicine, um, the pathologies, microbiology, genetics, what else is in that, nuclear medicine. Uh, in that cluster, your risk of going unmatched is about one in 40. The cluster B disciplines, well, let me just move to cluster C. So cluster C are the ones that are very competitive. So they're the ones in which there are far more applicants than there are positions. Uh, and you can imagine which ones they are. So they're ENT, plastics, neurosurgery, orthopedics might fall in there. What else goes in that list? I'm trying to think off the top of my head. But they're, they're the classic sort of, you can imagine these are, as you say, the high-risk disciplines because your risk in those as a cumulative group is one in four. And what's interesting about that group is that you are more likely to go unmatched than you are to match to another discipline, which is in contrast to cluster B, which is everything else like general surgery, anesthesia, um, obstetrics, like all the other ones are in cluster B. And in that group, your risk of going unmatched, and this was from 20, this was a decade worth of data finishing in 2019. In that group, your risk of going unmatched is one in 10. Um, but you are likely to match to something else. So what that says to me is that those cluster C disciplines that are very competitive are encouraging students to put all their eggs in one basket, essentially. And so what's changed in the last uh, two years is that students can no longer do all of their electives in one discipline. And so it's encouraging some diversification, which I think is critically important for producing a nice, well-rounded physician, but also allowing people to actually develop parallel plans for CALMS. So what we really encourage, so firstly, we share that information with our students. I think it's really important that they have all of the information available to make informed decisions. Um, and we encourage them to develop more than one viable career plan because let's be honest like well I don't know I'm speaking to surgeons but I think most physicians would be generally pretty happy working in more than one discipline like I doubt any of us are really only able to work in anesthesiology for example uh, and so we really encourage students to look very closely at what another career choice could be that they could thrive in in the future, which is very much in contrast to the idea of a backup because a backup is just a recipe for disaster because you could match to your backup 
And if you haven't fully explored it and really given thought to what it could look like in 30 years' time working in that backup, I, I, I can only imagine that that is not a, a recipe for well-being in the resident years and beyond. So basically, we arm our students with all the available information. We encourage them to explore multiple options. And that's not to say that there isn't going to be one clear front runner. I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, but I think the idea that we, we being a medical profession, try to get students to put all their eggs in one basket is just a bad plan. So things are changing a little bit in that regard. And I hope that we are responding to that with our program as well. You bring up so many uh, important and interesting points. I'm curious, is there a national level discussion that is this nuanced and this granular that's going on right now? Or is this sort of a, a few people in a few places discussion? Uh, if there is a national level conversation, I'm not invited to it. I, I'm uh, talk, talking amongst myself about this stuff. Interesting, like, interesting. I feel very passionate about this. I, I feel like there needs to be some sort of reform. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, you, you speak so eloquently to it and it makes so much sense. Well, one of the things we wanted to explore, uh, you know, as you pointed out, a lot of our listeners are surgeons, is the relationship between anesthesiology or GIS and, and surgeons. And I, mm -hmm. I would always make the argument, you know, I've talked about it a little bit before, that, that it's, it's a unique relationship across all of medicine. You know, the relationship between cardiology, for example, and, and um, or maybe even interventional cardiology and cardiac surgery, you know, again, as a hypothetical, is very different from, from what we experience, you know, with each other, for example. And, mm -hmm. um, and I don't necessarily entirely mean when a patient becomes ill and we're operating and you're looking after them or we get into a bunch of bleeding, you know, it can be the day-to-day the, the -day sort of slow or mundane cases as well. I'm curious how on the other side of the, the curtain, the literal curtain, so to speak, how you really? view that relationship. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great question. I, I, it really is a symbiotic relationship unlike any other in medicine, like you say. Like I really can't think of another example that's so close-knit. Um, and it really strikes me that we need to make more of that actually both totally. kind of in the operating room but also academically like in terms of education and and research as well because we can't exist without each other um and when it works well it's great especially during a crisis that relationship um and i know that you and i have done many trauma cases together for example and to my mind those trauma cases are a really great example of of when the anesthesia surgery relationship is really tight mm -hmm. um, and decision making in the moment is made together as a team um, which i really think is is critical um but yeah like it's an interesting relationship hey like in a way like a, a teeter-totter is a bit of an analogy too because there's this surgical condition and there's the things that you are doing which may involve fairly major exsanguination depending on the case and then on the other side we're kind of trying to bring everything back to homeostasis so there's there's this um tension between the push-pull but also I, I think that it's fair to say that we really are on the same team like we're both looking towards the same goal which is a good patient outcome in all domains of their care yeah, ex exactly. You know, I, I, I thought about this for a long time and I struggled to even 
um, bring up an analogous relationship outside of medicine. Like if you think of business or you think of, I don't know, law or accounting, like I maybe, maybe I'm just ignorant to it, but I, I really can't come up with one. Um, yeah, and, and it's I, interesting how our, our two groups are in general, like most places I've been and visited and trained quite separate from each other to your point, mm-hmm. so, socially, academically, um, you know, everything wise, it's, uh, it, it's a bit odd, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. It's true. And it, it's not just an, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a Canadian phenomenon, like I, the places that I've worked yeah, exactly. um, in now three different countries are, this is true everywhere. Yeah. What's your view or, or, or what do you want out of a, out of a surgical anesthesia interaction? I know that's a very broad 30,000 foot question, but you know, I guess what we're looking for is what, what are the absolute do's maybe? And what are the absolute don'ts? What, what drives you nuts? Well, you know what? I'm going to start with the do's actually. Perfect. Um, we'll, 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 we'll build momentum here. I like it. <laughs> I'm looking to, to get some credit before I hit you with the don'ts. Um, well, here's the thing. So I've given some thought to this and in part, it's because I've given thought to what I'm looking for when I select an anesthesiology residency candidate, because it's the Mm. same thing. Mm. Because at the end of the day, when I, yeah, like at the end of the day, it's really the non-medical expert can meds roles where this is really at, to be honest. So when I think about like a really good day in the operating room, for example. Um, and by that, I mean, it's personally and professionally satisfying, but also, and it clearly goes hand in hand, it's been a great day in terms of good patient care and patient safety, and it all goes together, right? Um, and when I think about where that, com- where that comes from and how that is exemplified, I think about it starts really with the booking, for example. Like, I think hmm. that um, case selection um, and the choice to proceed to the operating room is something that we are never involved with as anesthesiologists. And, and interestingly, it's something that we have begun to kind of address with the complex case committee at the foothills. And I'm happy to go down that uh, tangent at any point. But it's really helpful for us to kind of understand what the goal is because every now and again, we come to the operating room or a patient comes to the operating room and we think, Oh, like what are we trying to achieve here? So it's nice to know kind of what the plan is and the thinking behind the case selection. Mm -hmm. Um, And in some ways, then in terms of my kind of personal view of this, uh, when I think about the way that the case is booked, it's really helpful if it's booked for the appropriate period of time. Now, clearly, you're not going to know when things are going to go sideways. There's unexpected things happen in the operating room. Um, but that's really helpful to have like a good idea of what the day holds and have that actually pan out as it appears on paper as far as reasonably possible. Well, I um, think that's a, that's a really interesting point, right? Because if we put all the cards on the table and we're honest in this discussion, you know, when when you guys are assigned or pick your your room, you know well before you start that day you're going to be late, yes. um, or you're or you're going to be early, right? Uh, yeah, it's like, true. Like you guys know, just like We've got just you like we know, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's the truth of it. Yeah, it is. It is. So yeah, that like likely it's best if there's a match between. <laughs> 
those two things. Um, So then, you know, one of the other things I think is is really great that contributes to to a good day is the kind of huddle before the safe surgery checklist. So it's really helpful if the surgeon is there at the beginning of the day. We kind of can look at the slate and go, okay, well, this case is going to be straightforward. This one I've got concerns about. These are my concerns, you know, and, and perhaps a little bit more detail. But a lot of that stuff is not appropriate for the safe surgery checklist, which is done kind of mm-hmm. with the patient there. And, and some of the things we discuss, you know, totally. particularly if you're going to be talking about major hemorrhage, possibly doesn't need to be in as much detail as we need in front of the patient. So really what it comes down to when I think about what is a good day and a good interaction with the surgeon that I'm working with, which are the majority, um, I think what I'm talking about essentially is like really great communication and collaboration and the sense that we are not technicians and we're not machines. We are actually members of a team looking after a patient because sometimes I think that is lost and not just in in surgeons' views of us, but I think in general, I think sometimes people don't appreciate that we are indeed invested in that patient while they're with us, but also beyond. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I, the term that comes to mind when you describe that is operational, right? You yeah. often hear that anesthesia is an operational arm or an operational entity, but it, it really undersells all of the critical decisions and care that, that you guys provide all day, every day. Right. I, you know, I think of us very much as perioperative physicians, um, which certainly recognizes that our skill set goes beyond intraoperative technical skills. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we, we have a skill set that it extends both pre-op and post-op. Um, and I really see us as being an advocate for a patient who's kind of at their most vulnerable, if you think about it. So yeah, I'm yeah. Like, I see that our role there. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. And you know, again, speaking from personal experience, the preoperative assessment um, that that you guys provide, whether it's in the clinic as an outpatient experience, whether it's an inpatient experience prior to you know a more urgent operation. Um, is is always incredibly helpful and and sometimes you know we do rely on on you guys to provide a, 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 a you know a second look and say what are you really doing here bud um and I, yeah. I think it's probably the the you know the 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 egoless uh honest surgeon really deeply appreciates that when it happens sometimes it's helpful for us to know that that's what you're asking though because occasionally mm, you know for sure yeah. well you know we we haven't um not an algorithm, what's the word, protocol for how patients are seen in our pre-admission clinic. And so we go off and we work there and there are 12 patients booked. But sometimes we don't really appreciate that what you're asking is, should we really go ahead with this? Yeah, Um, totally. You know, I think for the majority of patients, the risk-benefit ratio is quite clear. Um, And that's the vast majority. But in a very small percentage, it's not clear. Like you're going to do a thing. There may be other surgical things that you could do that are potentially less giant. Um, There may be medical options. There may be palliative options. Um, And we need to know that that's what you're asking us because we can give you a fair um, understanding of what the perioperative period could look like for that patient. But we're kind of doing it with half the equation. 
because we don't know what the alternatives are, mm-hmm. which is why we're trying really hard to develop this complex case committee for patients who are exactly in this category, which is where it's not um, very urgent surgery. We haven't really done any cancer surgery. It's more elective, um, but clearly has an indication. And we're trying to figure out, like, really, like, is this a good idea? What are our, our alternatives? What's the perioperative period going to look like? And is there anything we can do to optimize that pre or inter or post? And who else can we bring in? And so we've got this committee that has surgeons on it, anesthesiologists on it, internal medicine, geriatrics, and ICU. And we all get together and we hear these cases in a multidisciplinary way. And I really feel like that may well be the way forward for those more challenging cases for making surgical decision-making. Absolutely. Okay. Now tell us what you don't like. (laughs) Oh, okay. So (laughs) this is a a risk of being like a laundry list of complaints. eh? It's my list of complaints. You know, I, I have to say I am speaking for myself and, uh, I also need to preface this by saying that 99% of my interactions with surgeons are very positive. Like I think I have a good working relationship with really all of the surgeons that I work with. Um, And anything that I'm going to say here, I think could equally be directed at anesthesia or or anyone else really. Like at the end of the day, like I said earlier, it's all about the the non-technical skills, CanMed's roles here. Um, so here are some specific things that you asked me what drives me crazy. Here's mm-hmm. my answer. Love so it. when at the beginning of the day or the beginning of the case, we meet the patient for the first time in the holding area or equivalent. Um, and we have to form a relationship with that patient very quickly. And again, I think this speaks to a misunderstanding that, anesthesia has you know our patients are asleep we have no relationship with them which is so not true uh we do we form rapport very quickly and we need to form a relationship of trust very quickly and you know i think if you've had surgery you know how terrifying it can be to kind of put yourself into someone's hands whether that's a surgeon or an anesthesiologist um, and so, and obviously we also need to do a pre-op assessment to make sure that we're good to go um, for the case and to plan how we're going to proceed with the case. So something that does really drive me crazy is if I'm in the middle of a sentence and the surgeon walks up and starts talking to the patient. So the patient is really excited to see the surgeon as well they should be because like you guys have got this long-term relationship with them and it's great and they've got lots of questions and I think it's really important that you make that connection pre-op absolutely um but it can be very undermining for our interaction and our rapport development yeah absolutely that's sort of communication on one-on-one isn't it yes that's a good summary of a very specific example yeah um the other thing I would say is that it is very helpful to us for you to be there at the beginning of the case and I know that sounds like a no-brainer uh, but it's super helpful if you're there, not your fellow, for planning, for a huddle, for the briefing, and for positioning. So I have had an instance many years ago where the surgeon wasn't present uh, and the fellow requested the case to be done in a sitting position. So 
the sitting position for neurosurgery is very uncommonly done these days because it's associated with significant uh, complications. And then, you know, I can say in the 17 years that I've been on staff, I've done it uh, twice. Uh, and so there really needs to be a lot of planning around that um, and a lot of conversation about the risks and benefits of, of that position. So it was really challenging for me to have this asked of me, but actually not have a surgeon there, the surgeon of record there to discuss this with. So that's an extreme example, which ultimately became a surgery that was done in the prone position. Um, wow. But it, it, it's very helpful to have you there as part of that initial planning phase. And I think it sets the tone for the room as well if you're there, you know? Yeah, there's... Um, there's no doubt too. And I think to be fair, as an educational tool for our own surgical trainees, it's helpful for them to watch us do that and model that. Oh, absolutely. You know, and along those same lines, I, I think, you know, setting the tone of the room and establishing that level of communication is really important. So I have had also instances where I have had a surgeon come and do a 10-hour day and not look me in the eye or acknowledge me directly in any way. And, you know, frankly, that has massive implications for patient safety, <laughs> among other things. Um, but, you know, if that's the tone that gets set at the beginning of the day, you can imagine how that unravels. Well, you know, it's funny. You, you had mentioned that to me previously a while ago, and I, mm -hmm. I, I, I've thought about it. A number of times since and I still can't wrap my head around that happening like again pull our work environment into something that's semi-analogous like can you imagine that happening on a plane can you imagine <laughs> that happening on a on a on a sports team can you like it just it doesn't happen that's that's no. disappointing yeah unacceptable yeah, yeah. I agree it's really strange behavior on every level really but Totally. When we look at the function of teams and teams in the operating room, they need to be able to function in a way where it's safe for everyone to communicate freely, honestly. Um, and so that is not a great start for interactions, but it's extremely rare. You know, I think most of the time the surgeon arrives and we, we have a great conversation about how the day is going to go. So, you know, everything I'm saying here is unusual, but there are specific examples that really speak to the same thing over and over, which is communication and collaboration, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, in terms of um, some other specifics, if you're going to alter the physiology in any way, you should tell us that you're going to do it. So, for example, if you're going to clamp something big or unclamp something big or... Are you, you perhaps uh, insinuating when we clamp the cava doing a bad liver with, uh, with uh, high venous pressures? We might want to tell you. Yeah, yeah. we like to know that. We like for to sure. know that we've got venous return. We love it. Um, it's, it's helpful for us to plan, shall we say, and it helps us interpret what we're seeing as well. And again, this is a no-brainer. And sure, like things happen in the heat of the moment as well, but it can be quite difficult for us to really appreciate where you're at in the surgery. We can't see. For Sometimes sure. it can be really difficult to hear. Like, do you find that? Like the operating room is loud. Like there's bear huggers and suction and like it, it can be very difficult to hear the details of your conversation. 
Yeah, I agree entirely. And it's especially bad with N95s on and, uh, oh, and, these, yeah. tra- and these traumas. It's just like, yeah. I can, I'm sorry, can you say that for the third time? I, I genuinely can't hear you. Yeah. That should be its own podcast, I think. Yeah, exactly. Trauma surgery in the era of COVID. Um, and then one final thing I would say is if you encounter an anesthetic, uh, sorry, a, a post-operative complication that you think could be attributable to anesthesia, it's really great to let us know about it because I've certainly heard instances of this where, you know, many months later on the grapevine you hear about it and I think it's really important for us to know medical legally um, but it's also really mm-hmm. important for us to know for our own professional development that something wasn't quite right. Um, so, yeah, back to the communication thing. What's remarkable about what you're saying is that, like, it seems like it should be, as you say, a no-brainer. Like, it should be something that um, that we just intuitively understand. Like, that, that whole comment that you made about someone not looking in the eye for 10 hours, it seems like something that just couldn't or shouldn't happen like why do you Mm -hmm. think that happens like when there is a breakdown in the relationship between surgeon and anesthesiologist do you think that's usually is it a personality thing do you think it's usually a one-off like what what do you think is the reason for that i'm obviously that's that's a complex multi-layered question and probably context specific but but in your experience like why does that happen yeah, I don't know. It, it is interesting to me, though, and this goes a little bit hand-in-hand hand with some of the work that I've done in undergraduate and postgraduate med- medical education. When you see something like that, it's rarely isolated. Like, there's usually something going on, um, and often in multiple parts of their practice. <laughs> and this is by no means... Like I'm not saying this this is a surgeon problem. Like this is true in medicine in general. Um, so I, I honestly do not know, but it is it is something that's so important to address. But we have no way of addressing that. Like I I really don't know how to manage that in the moment, other than to push through and provide the best care that I can under those circumstances. And to to be fair, it's very very unusual. So yeah, I I can't, I can't answer your question. Yeah, and in fairness, this is a, it's a it's a big, massive, massive question. But I think you're you're so right that, that there often is a whole constellation of, of things going on in the background, mm-hmm. uh, and, and perhaps that's important to like to just acknowledge. Uh, perhaps at the end of the day, if if you know that there's been a bit of a a bad interaction, I know I know my dad is is famous at his hospital in, in Fort Saskatchewan for just directly kind of confronting and maybe this isn't the best way of going about it but <laughs> but but he'll he'll just say to his anesthetist who he knows for many years because it's a small community hospital he'll just say to them like like why are you being like this like what's going on and mm-hmm. usually there's a story that kind of kind of spills out of there um, yeah and you know that's an interesting point in itself because the system that I trained in was one where the anesthesiologist and the surgeon have an ongoing relationship so here the computer schedules me and I work with a different surgeon kind of every day um, and I can go a long time, long time between livers. Uh, whereas in Australia you work with the same surgeon on a Tuesday morning forevermore until you decide that relationship no longer continues. And there are pros and cons, but the pros are 
you do develop an understanding of expectations and what's going to come next and there's an ability to kind of sh talk in shorthand and you know i i don't have any evidence for this but i wonder about efficiency and i wonder about safety that that is such a <laughs> that, i mean that that's a dream eh? Uh, you know it's interesting one of our uh liver colleagues from toronto who recently moved to mayo was describing to us the way that that mayo functions which is very much like what you're describing and it's also what i experienced as a fellow in the u.s like not only do you have your one or two anesthesiologists on your in your group but you have the same scrub nurse you have the same mm -hmm. circulator you have the same periop folks and it's incredible i think how much stress that takes out of difficult operations in general yeah. for everybody but just really not an option um to date in in canada and i we do talk about that quietly in the back hall, and I wonder why it hasn't happened, but boy, would it be great. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in anesthesia, it's really important that we are exposed to a sufficient case mix that we are comfortable and safe on call. So it's really important to not become too subspecialized. Um, but at the same time, like I really, you know, I've been thinking a lot about team dynamics and team function and <laughs> the team knowing each other is a good start i think a lot of the time well i think this is uh, a good segue to talk about one of your new roles which is that you're the the, the residency director for the anesthesia mm -hmm. program you know uh, i'm curious why why you would take a role like this because it's, it's not an easy role um you know having now kind of watched uh my program director is sort of thinking about it as a graduate now. Like I, I kind of appreciate how hard it is sometimes to be in that role for a variety of different reasons. Um, but but why why what got you into that role and what do you think are the big challenges going forward for anesthesia education? Oh, those are great questions. You know, in terms of medical education in general. So firstly, I will say that like I love this job. And as the residency program director, I, I see it as uh, such a great privilege. Like I'm really enjoying watching people develop because by the time they come out of our program, they're phenomenal. Like they are way better anesthesiologists than I am. And that is something that brings me great satisfaction and joy. Um, but to speak more generally about medical education, uh, for me, this developed quite organically um, when I was probably seven or eight years into staff practice when I kind of found myself thinking, well, this is good, but what next kind of idea. And it was around about that time that I was really kind of understanding the, the concept that this is really important. Like I think we have an obligation to teach the next generation. I think this is the right thing to do because if you think about it, we are each – individually um, incredible, incredibly valuable resources. Like think about the training that we've had and then this sort of intangible wealth of experience that we harbour within us. And so, you know, I started thinking, well, we're, we're always going to take that with us. Like we have, we have lifespans. And so I, I really do think it's our obligation to kind of pass all of this on to the next generation. Um, and then if you think about it in a sort of egocentric kind of way, um, albeit a morose way, uh, it really is a legacy as well. 
And when I think about some of the things that I do in my practice today, I can hear in my ear the voices of the people telling me to do it this way. Um, maybe not telling me is the right way, but, you know, I, I learned so much from those people and, and I bring them with me and the things that they taught me as I go through my practice now. And I had a very interesting experience recently where I had to write an assignment for my master's coursework and I pulled a reference that I recognised the name of the author of and it was a, a physician in Australia who was in fact the preceptor for the first small group that I had in first year of medical school in 1991 and he was he was a geriatrician and he was there facilitating a small group about some cardiovascular case and he was the first person who kind of introduced me to the idea of preload afterload and pump and it was like this light turning on moment and I still use those constructs today when I'm problem solving perioperatively perhaps with a little bit more sophistication but at the end of the day that's kind of the framework um, and so he made this incredible impact on me uh, in terms of an enjoyment of physiology, but he also taught me a lot about how to create a really safe learning environment that was full of enthusiasm and curiosity. And so I actually looked him up on the interweb and I emailed him out of the blue after 29 years and said, hey, uh, you are not going to remember me, but I was one of your students way back and I really wanted him to know what an incredible impact he had had on my career and to be fair I hadn't thought about him in that period of time at all but when I saw his name I realized that bits of the things that he taught me I am carrying with me today and it was so important for me to close that loop and so we had this really lovely email interaction backwards and forwards and he was retiring this year and in the process of moving back to Ireland where he was from so those sorts of things are the reason why I think medical education is critically important and why I'm thrilled to be in this position as program director it's such, um, a, such a beautiful and moving um, description of why it's so important and why teachers are so important I mean uh, you know I, I hear things that now, I, even though I, I just recently graduated, but I, I mean, I hear Tony McLean or Chad Ball oh, yeah. in my ears all the time. And, and, you know, whenever I feel like cutting corners, I, I can, uh, I can feel, uh, Dr. Ball, uh, you know, breathing down my neck. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful relationship. Like it's, it's, it's kind of not something that's, that you can find in the same way, maybe outside of medicine. It, like if someone teaches you how to do something, uh, with a patient with such high stakes like it's really there's nothing there's no relationship that mm-hmm. has that much stakes and, and analogous I think outside of medicine like it's really a, a beautiful relationship yeah you, it is I, I agree yeah and and you know to that point do you think that people can get better as teachers like do you think that you can actually train someone to be a better teacher because um, oh, absolutely it, because it, it seems like sometimes you know people are naturally inclined to it and good at it, and they may not be the people who are, you know, interested in medical education or have that as their research focus. But uh, you know, clearly there's something different about the way that they do things, and, and you can understand it the way that they they teach it to you. Like, how do you impart that to uh, 
um, someone and how can you make someone a better teacher? Yeah, great question. You know, I, I think, and I, I want to focus sort of on clinical teaching and, and bedside teaching as opposed to classroom-based teaching, which, you know, you can you can learn about those things through various different coursework. Um, but in terms of the clinical teaching, which as you say is a really unique mentorship relationship that you do carry with you thereafter, I think we all have the capacity to be excellent teachers. And the first thing I would say is that I think we need to address some, the, the biggest fear that I hear articulated is that I hear people say, well, I, I don't really know enough to teach or well, I haven't really thought about that topic in a long time to know enough detail to be able to teach a senior resident. But I think it's really important to, to actually take a second to go, well, actually, you've got a ton of experience and you are the expert. And really, the first thing you need to do is to just become consciously competent. So you need to just be aware of what it is that you're doing, whether you're teaching a technical skill, which for you guys is, is clearly critical, um, but also in terms of your decision making. And I, I think the residents get so much from just hearing us show our working just explaining why it is that we made the decision that we made goes a long way to, I think, creating um, a learning environment that kind of fosters to and fro and, and good learning in the clinical setting. Um, but it's also what they need. Like they need to understand why you did what you did so they can decide whether or not that's a reasonable justification and how it fits with other techniques or other options that they've learned. Um, so I think that is the first sort of big overarching step is to become consciously competent. And then I have thought about this too in terms of um, whether or not we could really improve our bedside teaching by focusing on the evaluation part. And I don't mean the evaluation of the preceptor, I mean evaluation of, of the resident because I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's the same for you, but in a, but anesthesia, at least, we have daily evaluations. And so I think by using the evaluation to kind of um, reflect and it, in a fair world evaluation should reflect the goals and objectives, it helps the preceptor kind of understand what the point of the whole thing is, um, you know, of the clinical experience of that day. And that's where CBD has actually been quite useful because those EPAs are broken down <laughs> to milestones. And so it's really clear what it is that you are expecting from your learner. And if you can see what it is that you're expecting from your learner, I think it really helps drive some of the in-the-moment teaching around it. So this is a huge topic, could also be its own podcast. Um, but I absolutely think that all of our faculty are capable of being excellent bedside teachers. You know, it's it's interesting that you that you frame it in that way because – you know, I would argue, and Scott Gamore and I talked about this on a, on a podcast uh, a year ago, um, that in surgery, at least classically, there's very little, if, if any, direct feedback. It's sort of like if no one's yelling at you, you're probably doing a pretty mm -hmm. good job. And I, I, like you, I think CBD will be a, um, a really important and structured opportunity to improve the teaching as well as um, the feedback. So I think that, you know, clearly that the era is different as well with the expectation of students or trainees is different. Um, yeah. 
we've had some really interesting conversations, honestly, on the on the podcast. Most recently, Janice Pasika talked, you know, at length about some of the things that she tried to do and the people she tried to tap into to improve her ability um, to oh, teach. Okay. And it, it was remarkable to listen to. And I always, you know, I always sort of compare that in my mind to uh, a great story that a, a guy named George LaRock, who was a teammate of, of Wayne Gretzky's um, <laughs> a story a story he told and you know there to be fair you know in Larocque's book he and Gretzky are 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 very very close they're very good friends but he sort of said it was interesting to to watch the and and play with the greatest player of all time but when Gretzky tried to coach for for Phoenix or in the Arizona Coyotes he was the absolute worst coach he ever had in his entire mm-hmm. life including amateur hockey and Gretzky would skate out in the ice and get really frustrated and say why can't you guys do this, do this? And he would physically show them. And then they would all look at him and say, we, we just physically can't do that. Like, <laughs> we're, not, we're not you. And he, he sort of implied that, that Gretzky being, you know, Gretzky never made any attempt to sort of, you know, improve his coaching and improve his, his educating ability. Um, so, I, yeah, I agree. I think we can all learn it. We can all get better and... Uh, and there's certainly optimism if if the interest and the the desire is there. Yeah, I, I think Melinda, the last question we'd love to ask, and and I, again before I do, um, Amir and I thank you so much for spending the hour hour great. with us. Like, yeah, it's you're you're, you're fantastic. It's, it's been a great conversation. If you could go back in time and and give yourself advice as either a, a trainee or maybe a junior staff starting out, what what would you tell yourself? Oh, well, you know, I am so envious of the residents who are training now in 2020 in our program across the country. Like they have phenomenal training. They have exposure to such great stuff. And so what I wish that I knew and what I would say to them now is I would say lean in, like be prepared to be vulnerable, be prepared to be uncomfortable with not knowing um and to really go after the stuff that you don't know because now's the time like don't be defensive just be comfortable with this being the time that you have to learn um yeah i mean I, I, yeah that's my summary lean in be vulnerable <laughs>